Well, good morning, everyone. I don't know how often you think about what goes into uh, a sermon or what goes on in a, in a preacher's mind, either when he's preparing or when he's delivering a message, but um, there are a lot of things. Um, but the time on Sunday morning when we uh, go to preaching God's Word is uh, there's a lot going on. We, we desire that, uh, that we as a congregation would, would, would learn learn from the Bible and learn from what we're talking about. We, we desire to grow in knowledge and understanding. We, we desire that we would grow in our faith together. We desire that God would have his way on a Sunday morning when we're preaching God's word. And this morning, um, an overriding desire in my own mind as I've, as I spent time preparing this week uh, and praying and uh, in our time here today, an overriding desire is that we be brought to a place not just of learning, um, not just of growing in our understanding, but that we would be brought to a place of worship, where as a result of our time at looking at God's Word today, we would be brought to a place where we are worshiping Jesus Christ in our own hearts. And, uh, and that's something that, that um, even if I were the most persuasive speaker, I couldn't necessarily accomplish because it's a work of God. And so uh, to that end, let's, let's go to the Lord together in prayer and ask him to bring us to that point. Lord, we come to you this morning, and we're glad that, uh, glad is not the right word, we are overjoyed, we're ecstatic that you have given us your word that, uh, that tells us about, about who you are and tells us about your working on our behalf. Thank you for your word that tells us about Jesus. Lord, this morning I pray that you would help us, that you by your spirit would work in our hearts so that we would be helped to understand, to comprehend, to learn. But even more than that, that we would be brought to a place this morning where because of those things, because of seeing Jesus for who he really is, that we would be brought to a place of worship, that we would worship Jesus for who he is and what he has done for us this morning. And so I pray that you would work. I pray that you, by your spirit, would have your way uh, in our hearts this morning. Lord, help us to set aside those things that, that might distract us, those thoughts, those um, whatever else might come into our minds or might happen. Help us to set those things aside and to focus on you and to sit at your feet all together and learn of you this morning. We ask that you would be glorified, ask that you would work, ask that you would help me as I speak and help us as we listen. Be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So you can be turning in your Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 4, if you would. Luke chapter 4. We've been speaking for the last uh, couple of weeks. Uh, Pastor Woody has, has uh, been talking to us about the holiness of God, the holiness of the Lord. And, and, uh, and so we have been looking in Isaiah chapter 6 at uh, the great vision that Isaiah had there where he saw the Lord uh, seated on his throne in the temple and and uh, all that was there and 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 so he's seated there and the the hem of his garment filled the whole temple and he's on his throne and you had the the seraphim there and they were shouting back and forth at each other holy 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 is the lord of hosts the whole earth is full of his glory and that incredible scene and and uh, maybe you were surprised maybe you weren't uh, by by Isaiah's response when he saw such a thing that he was 
he was terrified. He was terrified when he saw that because he had seen the Lord and he had uh, gotten a glimpse of his glory. And he, in looking at that, understood about himself, uh oh, I'm not holy. I'm in trouble. And that's what he said, woe is me. And, and of course, the Lord took care of that. And, and that was, it's a great passage. And it's a, it's a great reminder about, about God's glory and about how we can, um, how, how we are to look at God's glory, how we are to understand God's holiness. And, and so this week, we're going to stay on the same theme, but we're going to transition slightly. And we're going to look at the holiness of Jesus. We're going to look at the Son of God Himself and, and His holiness. And we're going to look at uh, various New Testament passages. So we're going to be kind of turning around back and forth a little bit. I'll try and give you a heads up on that. But we're going to look at some different passages that talk about the holiness of the Son of God and look at the response of various of the people to that holiness. And so uh, that's, that's what our desire is today. And so uh, we're going to look at in uh, here in Luke chapter four, and we're going to look at uh, Christ's holiness and how it produces fear, how it produces fear. It's it's similar to uh, to to what happened with Isaiah. When Isaiah saw the holiness of the Lord, the response was was terror. He was he was afraid. He had he had fear. And and so Christ's holiness produces fear. Right. And first of all, we're going to look at a situation with a demon here in Luke chapter four. And uh, we're going to see that there was fear and there was hatred and uh, from from a demon that Jesus comes in contact with. So I'm going to read to us from chapter four and verses thirty one, excuse me, through thirty five. Luke chapter four. So this is very early on in Jesus ministry. He has traveled to Capernaum and he's going to be teaching Verse 31 of Luke chapter 4. If you're reading in the, in the Pew Bible in front of you, by the way, it's page 860. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And so there's fear and there's hatred mixed together as a response from this demon. Jesus is teaching there. He's teaching in the synagogue. And uh, and a man speaks up, a man who has a demon and uh, and he speaks up and he addresses Jesus directly and he's talking to him and and he recognizes right away this demon does what what humans around were not yet recognizing about Jesus. I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. What what are you going to do to me? What are you going to do to us? He recognizes right away does this demon exactly who Jesus is and he knows about Jesus that that he has the power to do to this demon whatever he desires. You see, the demon had overcome this man who had been possessed, who was troubled by this demon. The demon had overcome that man. But when this demon faces Jesus, he realizes that Jesus has the power, the authority to do whatever he will to that demon. And so he understands and he responds with fear. 
He knows who this is. This is the Holy One of God. This is, this is God's Messiah that He has promised, that He had sent, that He was going to uh, deliver the world by. So He knew this is the Messiah. It's entirely fear. Imagine being in that demon's spot, realizing that the Holy One of God is on the scene. And you're an unclean demon. The response is fear. He's afraid because he knows that his fate is in Jesus' hands, but it's more than that. What have you to do with us? He says. It's not just fear, it's hatred. He hates Jesus. He hates who he is. He hates what he stands for. He hates his holiness. He hates Jesus. And so that's this response that you get, this response of fear and from hatred from this demon. But we're going to look at at another passage just in the next chapter, and we're going to see fear and sorrow from a disciple. So look at chapter 5. So we're going from Luke chapter 4 to Luke chapter 5. Starting in verse 4. So here you have Jesus and he's, uh, he's teaching the people and there's so many people crowded around. He actually got in a boat and kind of went out into the water so he'd have a place to stand, right? And uh, he taught from there and or sat and taught from there. And in verse 4, and when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that had been taken. So here you have a disciple, and this is very, very early on. You get the sense that, that Jesus and Peter had just met. This is extremely early on. And he sees this miracle go down. Peter, who's a fisherman, has been out working all night. He knows his business, right? He's been out working all night trying to catch fish, didn't catch anything. Came in, and his boat is being used by the Lord to teach from. And when it's done, the Lord says, put out and let's, let's go fishing. Let down your nets. Well, you know, Peter, you're, you know, he's, he, he sees Jesus and knows that obviously Jesus is a good teacher. He's not a fisherman. So he kind of says, well, we tried that and didn't catch anything at nighttime when you should have been fishing and didn't catch anything. And, but we'll do that, Lord. So he goes out, goes out, lets down his nets and catches so many that they, they can't haul it in. So they have to whistle over the other boat and they're hauling it into two boats. And it's so much the boats are like over, over full. The Lord had done an incredible miracle. And Peter sees it. And what's his response? You know, sweet, payday's coming. No. His response is totally different. His response is fear. He understands that there is something unique. There is something different about Jesus. Not only is Jesus an amazing teacher whose words have power and have authority, but he's able to make fish show up where there had been no fish. He's able to overfill these two boats by saying so. This, there's something different. There's something unique. There's something holy about who this Jesus is. 
And so when Peter sees him, there's, there's fear. But you see the difference between what Peter said and what the demon said? The demon said, what have you to do with us? Get away from us. What does Peter say? Go away from me, Lord. I'm, I'm, I'm a sinful man. I can't bear to be in your presence. There's a completely different response. There's fear and there's sorrow at his own sinfulness. Peter's response, Peter's, Peter's experience was sort of a version of what Isaiah had experienced. Isaiah had this great vision. Well, Peter, Peter saw something happen, saw what Jesus had done, and he realized what the Lord is capable of, what kind of man this is. He begins to realize, and his, his response is fear, but it's a fear with sorrow because he's, he's, he's sorrowful that he's a sinful man. And so now we're getting somewhere. We're getting somewhere with Peter. He's making some progress. And it's interesting. Look at, look at Jesus' response. Right? Peter says what he says. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And what, is, what does Jesus say? He says, do not be afraid, down in verse 10. Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Do not be afraid. Now, don't be confused by that passage. Don't be confused by what Jesus says. Peter's response of fear is legitimate and it is appropriate. Jesus isn't saying, oh, you got me all wrong. Uh, you know, there's nothing to be afraid of. That's not what he says. It's, it's Jesus speaking mercy to Peter. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Peter's fear is legitimate because he is a sinful man and the Lord is putting his fear to rest by giving him mercy. Don't worry, Peter. Don't be afraid. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. I'm going to change you. I'm going to work in you. And so that response of fear is legitimate. And without the Lord reaching out with that, with that mercy uh, to Peter, Peter would have remained an object of wrath instead of becoming a child of God. It was the Lord saying, do not be afraid. That was his gift of mercy. And, and so that raises the question for us, I wonder, do you truly understand how holy the Lord Jesus is? When you think about Jesus, does his holiness come to mind? Do you think about the fact that he is absolutely separate from sin? That he is absolutely unique in all of creation? He is unique in all the world. He is utterly holy. The right response when we encounter Jesus for who he really is, is fear until the point where the Lord himself says to you, do not be afraid. That's how we should come to Jesus. Realizing that he is holy, infinite God. He is unique and there's none like him. And I'm a sinful man. My initial response is fear and Jesus puts that fear to rest. So we have... The response of fear. Secondly, we have uh, Christ's holiness produces faith. It produces faith. We're going to flip over Matthew, Mark, Luke. We're going to go to John. So you're in John chapter 6. We're going to look at Christ's holiness producing faith. John chapter 6. We preached on this a while back. And I'm going to read 
verses 66 through 69. So I'm on page 80, uh, 892, excuse me, 892 in the Pew Bible. So this, this comes after some very difficult teaching in John chapter 6. The bread of life dif- discourse is difficult for us to understand, and it was very difficult for those to understand who were standing there listening to Jesus teach. And at the end of his teaching, many left. Many left and said, we can't take it. We can't take this teaching. It's too much. We're out of here. Right? So we pick up the story in chapter 6 and verse 66 through 69. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So here we have another story about Peter and Peter's response to the holiness of God particularly the holiness of Jesus. So we see, first of all, that uh, Christ's holiness produces faith, faith in the only way. Faith in the only way. Peter says right off the bat, Lord, to whom shall we go? What's implied in that answer? You're the only one like you. We're not going to find someone else like you. To whom shall we go? You are the one with words of eternal life. So you are utterly unique, Jesus. You are the only way that we are going to hear truth about eternal life. You are the only way that we are going to gain access to peace with God instead of enmity with God. You, Jesus, are the only way that we can know the Father. Who else are we going to go to? Your teaching may be hard at times. Following you may be difficult sometimes. Where else are we going to go? You're the only way for us to be right with God. So we are going to stick with you. We are going to stay with you, Jesus. And so Peter understood that there is nowhere else that they could go to gain access to eternal life. Jesus is entirely set apart. He is the only way to have peace with God instead of the enmity that our sin has deserved. And Peter recognizes that. And he said, where else are we going to go? The Bible is very clear that Jesus is, is not one way among many ways. The Bible is very clear about that, that he is the only possible way to God, the only possible way to heaven. The Bible always presents Jesus as the only unique, exclusive way to know God. And any belief that includes Jesus alongside other possible ways diminishes Christ's holiness. And it's therefore blasphemous and idolatrous. It takes Jesus down... And puts him alongside others. That's blasphemy. And that's idolatry. And Peter and his disciples understood that Jesus is unique. He is the only way. I'm not sure we normally think about Jesus being pulled down when we, when we, when we hear maybe in the news. Or we hear, so, you know, we see on Facebook. You'll certainly see that if you're on Facebook. You'll see that, uh, this idea that Jesus is one way among many. And he's just the way that Christians have and others have different ways. And and uh, Jesus isn't really that unique. He's not really that special. That's blasphemy. That's blasphemy. That's, that's taking him down and making him common. That's saying things that are, that are untrue about Jesus and making him less. 
It's also idolatrous and then it lifts up these other things as if they were equal with Jesus. The Bible is always clear that Jesus is the only way. And so Peter expresses faith in the only way. Faith in Jesus as the only way. And more than that, he expresses faith in Jesus as the Messiah of God. He says, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. During the the, the disciples' time in traveling with Jesus and listening to Jesus teach and ministering alongside Jesus, they had seen him for who he really was. They had seen him in every kind of context. They saw him at a wedding when he turned water into wine. They saw him late at night. They saw him early in morning. They saw when he would slip off by himself to go into the mountains to pray after ministering all day long. Instead of taking a nap or going to bed early, he would go pray. They saw him. They saw what he was really like. And they had come to believe, they had come to know and to understand that he was the promised Messiah of God who was going to be the one who would deliver his people from their sins. Occasionally you might hear someone refer to Jesus as a a good religious teacher. He was a, a righteous man and he did good stuff. Maybe they might even say he didn't sin. Uh, he did some good stuff. He had profound religious insight, but this business about him being the, you know, the son of God, that's, that's kind of overdone. That's, that, that's actually the result of, of things that his disciples made up after the fact. Sometimes you'll hear that. And uh, you get in certain conversations, you'll, you'll hear that a lot. I think it's something the disciples made up. Jesus was a great guy and a great teacher, very insightful, but uh, it wasn't really uh, the son of God. And the people who say that think they're somehow being generous with Jesus, right? They, they don't really maybe like Christians or Christianity all that much, and they'll always point to the Crusades, right? They don't really like Christianity all that much, or maybe Christians, but, but they're, they're kind of okay with Jesus, at least as they understand him. And so they think they're being nice to Jesus, right? They think they're, they're, they think they're doing him a favor. They want to blame Christianity, not Jesus. We've, we've kind of blown this whole thing up. Jesus didn't mean any of that stuff. But I want to make something real clear right here. Saying that Jesus was a good man and a good religious teacher, but saying that he was not the son of God or God's promised Messiah is to miss who Jesus really is. It means lowering him. Again, it means diminishing him, reshaping him into something that he is not. Ultimately, it means to miss out on God's single clearest and most critical communication to man. I'll say that again. Ultimately, it means to miss out on God's uh, single clearest and most critical communication to man. Listen to Hebrews, tw- uh, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2. In these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things. How has God spoken to us? By His Son. Not primarily by creation. Most fully, He has spoken to us in His Son. And God says elsewhere, the, the uh, Apostle John says, God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Jesus is utterly unique, and He is the way. He is the Messiah that God promised that He said He would send to redeem us. So the first response to Christ's holiness is fear. The second is faith. And now we're going to look at fortitude. Christ's holiness produces in us fortitude. And some of you are thinking, 
I should have looked for another F word, you know, to fill out the thing there. But no, fortitude is exactly what I mean. And I'll tell you why. Let's open to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. So you're turning to the right, to the right. 1 Peter chapter 3. Page 1016 in your pew Bible. Christ's holiness produces in us fortitude. Here's what I mean. I'm going to read 13 through 17, that whole paragraph. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for a hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame for it is better to suffer for doing good. If that should be God's will than for doing evil. So first of all, correctly understanding Christ's holiness gives us fortitude against suffering, fortitude against suffering. That's in this passage. So here again, we have Peter, the same guy, He's writing to people who are dealing with suffering and they're dealing with persecution. And that's key to understanding this passage that we just read and understanding about how understanding Christ's holiness gives us fortitude during a time of suffering. When we suffer, think about this. When we suffer or we're threatened with suffering or we're threatened with pain, that pain or suffering can grow so large in our own minds that we begin to focus on it more than anything else. We focus on that pain or that suffering or the fear of that pain or suffering more than we focus on anything else. And by the way, this is how terrorism works. You begin to focus on the fear that others are instilling in you more than you focus on anything else that you have going on. And the result is that the fear that we experience can grow and grow until it begins to control us. And it becomes our Lord. First Peter three tells us to keep fixed firmly in our minds that Christ is the only one who is to have such a high place in our hearts and in our minds. He is the highest. He is the holiest. He is the unique, the superlative Lord of our lives. We owe praise and worship and obedience to him and to him alone. He says in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord as holy and you will be able to face suffering in a Christ-honoring way. So if you're facing suffering, if you're dealing with fear, and it could be a fear of physical pain or, or of loss, it could be some other fear of an emotional kind of pain or relational pain or any other situation. You're, you're in a situation like that where this fear, this suffering begins to grow in your mind and it becomes huge and it becomes really all you can think about. How do we deal with that? How do we deal with that kind of suffering? In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy. He is to have the unique place in my life as Lord. He is the one who is utterly in charge of this situation, of this person. And he is the one who is my Lord. And I will give him honor. And I will give him praise. And I will give him my attention. And I will give him my obedience. And I will listen to him. And I will not listen to this suffering whatever it may be.
Some of you know deep suffering that I don't understand. And this is the way to navigate that suffering in a way that honors God. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Fortitude against suffering, but also fortitude against opposition. Because he continues in this passage about opposition. That same truth about how we deal with suffering, about how we deal with pain, that same train of thought is true when we're facing opposition, when someone comes against us, right? When they would attack us for being Christians, maybe they verbally attack us for being Christians. In, in many parts of the world right now, they will physically attack you for being a Christian. And when we face that kind of opposition, how do we navigate it? How do we deal with those who oppose us? Right now, I'm, I'm in an ongoing conversation of evangelism where I'm sharing the gospel with some people and, and we meet regularly and, we, and, and they're not believers and I'm sharing the gospel and, and I'm praying that the Lord works in their, in their lives and in their hearts. And they're smart people. And sometimes I wonder, uh-oh, they're going to say something that I don't know the answer to. Or, uh-oh, they're, you know, maybe they're, a, they're probably a better person than me. You know? And, and uh, you know, I, I get intimidated. I get intimidated. Because of opposition. And this isn't, no one's raised a fist to me. No one's made me, you know, no one's come and written an in on my door so that they can come and target me later. No, I'm not, I'm not in trouble. I'm not in danger. This is a friendly conversation. But it's opposition. How do I navigate that? Well, you navigate it exactly the same way. You don't let the fear of this person, you don't let this opposition gain control. You don't let it grow in your mind to such a degree that it takes over. You don't give over to them. You don't give in in this. You don't give up control. We don't want to, we don't want to, to give that up. We're giving control to our enemies. We want to give control to the one who loved us and gave himself up for us. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, and you'll be able to navigate these situations sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. I think the new American standard says, and you will know how to answer those who oppose Christ or who question him or who come against you or who would come after you because of your faith. That doesn't mean you will magically have the answer, right? I, I, I often wish I just had this zinger. I, my mind works too slowly and I can't give a quick response. And later on when I'm drinking a cup of coffee, I think I should have said this, right? I'm probably not the only one there, right? I wish I had a quick mind, but I don't. But I think about it slowly. <laughs> and so I come up with the answer later. But when I have sanctified Christ as Lord of my heart, in my heart, when I, have, when I acknowledge that he is the only one that I'm going to give obedience to, he's the only one I'm going to submit to, he's the only one I give control to, I may not know the answer immediately to the person opposing me, but I know Jesus is the answer. And so I can hold out. And I'm not going to be swayed by some persuasive argument or scary attack or something like that. Jesus is Lord in my heart and I will submit to him. He won't magically be given the answers to every question or charge that your opponents have, but you will have a firm confidence and a resolution that Christ is the one true holy Lord of all and you will not be moved. That's how you stand against opposition, even when it's massive. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Finally, in conclusion, the ultimate response to Christ's holiness doesn't begin with F. It's worship. The ultimate response is worship. I'm going to read an entire chapter of the Bible to you in the next couple of minutes. Turn to Revelation chapter 5. 
This chapter will preach, by the way. Revelation chapter 5, page 1030 in your pew Bible. And we'll see the response, the ultimate response of worship. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Revelation chapter 5, starting on page uh, 1030 in your pew Bible. So this is a scene in heaven. And the eye, the person, it says, then I saw, that's John, he's the seer, he's the one God is giving this revelation to. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads, And thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. The Lamb alone is worthy. He alone is holy to bring history to its conclusion. Opening, opening the scroll was not just about reading what's going to happen. It was about having the power to enact it. And that's Jesus who will do that. And he alone is worthy to do that because he has conquered by his death. He has paid the price of his own life to purchase a people for God who would be his kingdom of priests. He, Jesus, is to be most honored, glorified, worshipped because of what he's done. I'll close with this. If our thoughts of Jesus Christ do not lift us up to worship him in this way, then those thoughts are lowly and unworthy of him. He is the one 
and only Son of God, who gave his life a ransom for many, and who alone is worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing forever and ever. Let's worship Jesus that way. Let's pray. Lord Jesus,